You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We're calling Seven Hallmarks of an Orthodox Church. With this week's message, here's education pastor Nolan Smith. Well, all of us at some point in our lives have had the experience of of trying to learn a a new thing, like a new hobby, maybe a new language, or or pick up a new skill. And and during that process, you may have have come to the realization that this might be a little more difficult than you expected it to be. Maybe there's a lot of details involved. Uh, Maybe it's a very difficult thing that you're trying to take on. And so you realize the scope is a little bit bigger than maybe you expected, and, and it starts to seem pretty daunting. And so maybe what you do is you try and look for something that can function as sort of a a main idea, something that if you can just get, get a hold of this one thing, you can wrap your head around this one thing, that it, it'll make everything else start to come a little bit easier. I sort of had this experience again recently, sort of secondhand. Uh, I was watching a, a football game, as I often do during football season. I was sitting on the couch watching football, and, um, and my, my five-year-old daughter, Elliot, she, she loves to do things with her mom and her dad. So she comes along and she wants to watch this game with me and she wants to have this experience with me. So she sits down next to me and she's like, what are they doing? And so I'm like, okay, five-year-old, I'm gonna explain football to her, right? Um, and so in my mind, what I immediately start to do is I go, okay, uh, so the white team with the star on their helmets, they're gonna try and get a first down. Now they got four chances to get this first down. They're trying to get to that line and what they're gonna do is they're either gonna hand the ball off or they're gonna try and throw the ball and so the other team's gonna try and tackle them before they do that and ultimately they wanna get all the way down the field but if they don't get that first down on their third try, then what they might do is they might kick the ball all the way across the field and hopefully the other team has to back up and then they have to start from way back here and then they have to start making their way down the field. Now they're gonna do the same things except we can't do anything illegal like move at the wrong time or you can't like hold the wrong person but you, sh- you are supposed to hold the person with the ball because you're just trying to tackle them and I'm, I'm going through all this in my head and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Like, I'm just imagining her face as I'm saying this and, and she's gonna be like, maybe football's not for me. And she's gonna get up and leave. So I'm like, I need to make this a little bit easier for her to understand. So what if there's a way I can just give her the concept that maybe she'll start to pick up the rest as we watch something. Okay, what's the, what can I, what can I say to her to just give her the main idea? And I think, okay, here's the thing. White team, uh, star on their helmet, they're trying to carry that ball into that painted area down there, right? The other team's gonna try and tackle them before they get there. The other team will get the ball. They're gonna try and do the same thing to get to the other end. And the team that does that the most times by the end of the game, basically, that's how you win. And I'm thinking, if I can give her that, now she's in. So she'll sit and watch and and she'll start to pick up the rest. She'll go, why are they doing this? But now she knows what the point is. She's got the main idea and it's gonna allow her to pick up all the details later on. So I bring that up because we are going back into our series on the seven doctrines that mark an Orthodox church. So we're examining these doctrines and we start to recognize, I think with, with some of these doctrines, but also with, with a lot of what we see in Christianity as a whole, is there some complicated stuff. And there are some things that are difficult for us to grasp. And so maybe there's a, a main idea, maybe there's something that, that if we can just If we can just comprehend this one idea, maybe it'll make the rest of it make sense. Maybe it'll make the other things come a little bit easier. And I think that the doctrine that we're gonna look at today functions like that sort of main idea. That if we can sort of master this doctrine, if we can can really get a grasp on what this doctrine is and what it says, then it might make the rest of the Christian faith make a little bit more sense. These other doctrines start to fall into place. And so we're looking today at the doctrine of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And the doctrine as it reads on our church website says this, we believe everlasting life starts 
when a believer's relationship with God begins. Anyone who trusts Jesus Christ as his personal savior immediately receives the gift of everlasting life. This spiritual birth is by the Holy Spirit who immediately and permanently indwells the believer and baptizes him into the body of Christ as a child of God. One's spiritual birth, also known as regeneration, is received through faith in Christ alone. In the same way that physical birth is a one-time, irreversible event, spiritual birth cannot be undone, and it leads to everlasting life. Therefore, the believer can experience full assurance of a relationship with God. You ask most Bible-believing Christians, hey, what is the one doctrine, if there was one central doctrine in how to live the Christian life, then you're probably gonna get an answer somewhere along the lines of saved by grace alone or saved by faith in Christ alone. And, and you see that it's important that I frame the question that way. What's most central to the Christian life? Because I think there's another question you could ask and it would have a different answer. And that would be, what's the most central doctrine to the Christian faith? Like if there was one doctrine that all the other doctrines are built on, and if you took this one doctrine away, the rest of them fall apart, we actually have a different answer for that. Paul gives it to us in, Roman, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says the resurrection is the most central doctrine to all the other doctrines. That if you take away the resurrection, then the entire thing falls apart. And so if, if the resurrection then, it's the answer to the question, why? Why do I believe in the Christian faith? Why do I trust in all of these other doctrines? Why can I look at the Bible and all of its complexities and all the things that can oftentimes seem really difficult to comprehend? Why can I look at the Bible and say, I trust what's in this book? And the why is the resurrection. I trust it because I believe that Jesus, after going to the cross and dying for my sins and yours, on the third day, stood up and walked out of the grave. That is why I believe in all these other doctrines. But that's the why. Then there's the how. How do I then live it out? If I believe these things, how am I supposed to live? What does it look like for a Christian to live out these doctrines well? And if I need to, to know what it looks like to live that out, is there a central idea that if I can get, a, get my head around this one central idea that it'll help me live out the Christian faith better? And I believe the answer to that is that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That that is the doctrine that answers the question, how do I live this out? Because it's such an applicational question, right? That, that this is an academic question. What, how do I, why do I believe these things? How do I make sense of this? But this is an applicational question. What am I supposed to do with it? How do I live it out? And I think the answer is in the salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we look at this and we say, okay, if I've convinced you up to this point, if I have convinced you to this point that this is, this is the doctrine, that if you can get a hold of this, then it'll make living out the Christian faith a little bit easier to understand, to comprehend moving forward, then we still have a problem. We still have a, we still have a problem because there are obstacles to understanding this. There are a lot of complexities to this doctrine that I think make it difficult for people to understand what this doctrine is saying and what it means. And so what are those, those obstacles? And I think we can break this down into a few questions that we can then explore. Some clarifying questions. And we're gonna start with this one. Saved from what? So when we say, hey, I want you to find salvation. I want you to be saved. Your question would be, from what? Like, 
That's great, you want me to be saved, but I don't know why I need saving. So what am I being saved from? And so we can answer this question sort of in, in, in two categories. And I wanna look first at a future implication or a future reality and then a present one. So when we say, what, when we say what are we saved from, we start with this future reality. But if we're going to look to the future, I think we actually have to go back and look at the past. So we go all the way back to the first three chapters of our Bible, Genesis one through three, and this is such an important part of the Bible for us to read and not understand because it's going to set the stage for the rest of the Bible. And so we go back to Genesis one through three, which is the, it's our biblical anthropology. It is the explanation of how we were created, for what purpose were we created, and then what went wrong that God had to give us the rest of the Bible, right? And so we understand in the very beginning that God established this garden and he put his, his, the pinnacle of his creation, human beings, in the garden, Adam and Eve. And he said, I want a relationship with you where, where I can dwell among you physically and we can, we can live here together forever in this perfect, harmonious relationship. And that's what I want. And so I'm gonna give you this garden. But in order for this to be a mutually loving relationship, God said, I've gotta give you a choice. It's gotta be a choice for you to trust me and to, and to love me. And so, so he put in the garden with all these things where he said, you can eat from anything in the garden, but there's this one tree. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and to take from this tree represented taking into our own hands or into humanity's own hands, I'm gonna, I'm gonna define good and evil on my terms. God, I'm not gonna trust your definition of good and evil. What you say I should do, I'm gonna take that into my own hands. So I'm gonna define good and evil on my terms. And that was where sin is introduced, that they eventually made that choice to take from the fruit of that tree. And they said, God, I don't trust you. I'm gonna trust in myself. And so sin enters into the picture. Now, God being perfect and holy has no sin in him at all. In fact, his holiness is so opposed to sin, it destroys sin, that any sin in his physical presence would be destroyed by his holiness. And now these human beings have sin in them. And so as a grace, God says, I'm gonna remove myself now from your physical presence. I'm not going to be in the garden anymore. So I'm gonna remove myself because you are now sinners. And there's another tree in the garden, it was the tree of life. And the tree of life was what they would eat from in order to stay in this garden forever with God. And God says, I don't want you to stay here forever in your sin apart from me. So I'm gonna cast you out of the garden so you no longer have that eternity in this place. So he cast them out of the garden. And so there we see the distance between God and man, a broken relationship. And that sets the stage for the world into which we are born. And so sin now pervades the world. And so we, we're, I think, fully grasp the fact that sin at a spiritual level is all over the place. We look around, we're like, yeah, there's evil all, all around me. I see people committing sin all the time. It's very clear. But it, it's actually at a physical level too, all the way down to a chemical atomic level. We see the world physically broken as well. We see that there is disaster and destruction in this world at a physical level. We are born into a world that is broken at every level. And that's what we come into this world as, broken. We come in with a sin nature. It means that from the time that we enter into this world, we don't stand a chance at a life without sin. We cannot live this life without sinning. That's just not on the table for us. And so if we are born into that world, and that's where we're at right now, without some intervention, without something changing, that's where our future will be as well. And while there are a lot of caricatures of hell out there and what it looks like, what it'll be like, what we need to know about hell is this. It is eternal separation from our creator. 
That's hell. And, and without God doing something to intervene, that is where humanity will stay for all eternity. And so when we ask the question, what are we saved from in a future sense, we are saved from this, sorry, I skipped a, a slide here, but we are saved from the consequence of sin, which is this eternal separation from God. This is what we're saved from in the future. So if we think about what we're saved from in the future, it's this eternal separation from God. Now, we, we also see that there is a present reality from which we are saved. So what is the present reality? The present reality, we see Paul described this in Romans chapter six, where Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, so he says, when you were slaves of sin, talking to believers saying, before you became Christians, you were slaves to sin. So everybody at one time is a slave to sin. That is what it means to be born into this sinful, broken world. We were all slaves to sin. And he says, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So Paul describes this reality, this present reality, as slavery to sin. And that makes sense that when we're born into a world like this, and we're born sinners, and we don't have the ability to go through this life without sinning, then of course, yes, that, that would be slavery, that we are slaves to sin. And so you, you, you hear this and you think, okay, it makes sense that before I was a Christian, that I was a slave to sin. But, but does that mean that if I become a Christian, I'm no longer a slave to sin? Does that, would that imply then that I'm, I'm not supposed to ever sin now? Because that would be a problem for most of us. So let's see what Paul says about that, about when we become Christians. What happens to our present reality when we become Christians? He says in Romans chapter seven, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So again, we get that imagery of slavery to sin, but Paul's gonna make a distinction here between the flesh and the spirit. And so he makes this distinction because when we become Christians, the moment that we place our trust in Jesus and we become Christians, a lot of things happen to us. A lot of things about us change in that moment when we become Christians. But one thing that does not change the moment we become Christians is that our physical body, it stays the exact same, right? It doesn't change. Like we don't become these like glowing dead Jedi figures, right? Like that's not what happens when you become a Christian you're still in the same body you were in when you were a slave to sin, and it's your flesh. And so Paul makes that distinction, and he says, and I think this is where we will start to really resonate with what Paul's saying here. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Now, I know that a lot of people aren't gonna be like, amen, but like silently, I think we're all going like, amen, yes, that's me. I don't understand my actions. So let's keep reading, because Paul's gonna continue this thought where he says, for I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Amen. Yes. I do that all the time, right? So we see Paul talking about this struggle, this present struggle, that even as a Christian, there is still this, this relationship with sin where I, I'm not completely without sin now. Like it doesn't just go away and now I'm perfect, I don't sin anymore. So what is this? 
And Paul says there's a distinction between my spirit and my flesh. That when I become a Christian, I receive a new heart. I receive, as we saw in the doctrinal statement, the Holy Spirit, which indwells me now. And so what he'll go on to say in the next chapter of Romans is he says, you can walk by the Spirit. He says, if you set your mind on the Spirit, you can now walk by the Spirit. That's not an option you had before you were a Christian. That's not an option you have when you're a slave to sin. So you and I, we're still in the flesh. We, we still have these sinful bodies and we are still capable of and will continue to sin. But now we're not slaves to it. Now we have the option, we have the opportunity to walk by the Spirit. And we can do that only because of what Christ has done for us. So we are saved then from the present power of sin. We are saved from the present power of sin, which is that slavery. Doesn't mean we'll never sin again, but it means now we can walk by the Spirit. And so if that's the saved from what, I think the next question would be, Okay, if that's where I'm not going, that's what's no longer true of me, where am I going? What is true of me now? In other words, what am I saved for? That's what I'm saved from. What am I saved for? And so we, we look at this, again, I think in, in sort of two parts, a future and a present, okay? So as we're looking at what we're saved for, I think first of Jesus' words in John chapter 14. And, and Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And what Jesus is saying is, we want to come to the Father. We want this restored relationship with the Father, but Jesus says, no one's gonna do that apart from me. No one will do that without my intervention, without me doing something to make it happen. But that's what we want. We want this restored relationship with our creator. We want to come to the Father. There's, a, a, I think, a beautiful picture of this uh, at the end of the Bible in, in Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 21, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's where the apostle John is writing uh, what God is revealing to him and relaying it to us. And he says this, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, he will be my son. And so uh, John tells us then this, this future where we are going to once and forever be living in eternity with God. That we'll have this restored relationship that we, there will no longer be a distance between man and God, that now we will, we will live there in his physical presence forever. And so this future reality of what we're saved for is this restored relationship, this restored eternal relationship with our creator. That is what we're saved for. Now, I should also say that there is a present reality to this as well. Because when we talk about a restored relationship, we're not just saying that it happens for your future. It also happens for your present as well. You are, you are now brought to the Father as a Christian in this life as well. But we experience that a little bit differently. One commentator said it this way. He said, there's a difference between your relationship to God and your fellowship with him. So your relationship, think of your relationship as your status with God. That once you become a Christian, you're now a child of God. You're a son or a daughter of God. That's your status. It never changes. But we all know that relationships as we experience them can change depending on how much time we spend with a person, 
how close we get to them in, in terms of like speaking to them. Like if you, if you have a friend and you don't talk to them for months at a time, you, you might think, man, I just don't feel close to that person anymore. And it's not because we're not friends anymore, it's because we don't spend much time together. And so for the believer, while your future reality is that you are now in, in a relationship with God forever, your present reality is that you, you can be brought close to God, but you can also not experience that full fellowship with him at all times. That sin, as you engage in sin or you turn from God, you can still feel a distance from him. That's about fellowship. But your status as a believer is now and forever changed to a son or a daughter of God once you put your trust in him. And so there's the future implication of it. What about the present? Because oftentimes what happens is people say, okay, great, I'm saved from hell, right? Like I'm saved from that eternity apart from God. Some people will call that your fire insurance, right? Like I have it, I don't need anything else now. I can just live the life that I wanna live. And I don't need to worry about my future anymore because it's taken care of. So I can do whatever I want. I can continue to live the life that I was living. And I would say that the answer to that is that we are actually saved for something in the present as well. And we can define it as that, that fellowship with God, but I think there's, there's another thing that we are called to that we are saved for in the present. And you can turn in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter two. It's where we'll camp out the rest of our time. But in Ephesians chapter two, Paul gives us what I think is, is one of the clearest passages in scripture of laying out the gospel message. Where Paul gives us this gospel message that we're gonna continue to read, but we're gonna skip ahead to the, the end of the passage, verse 10 of Ephesians chapter two where Paul is gonna tell us what we are saved for here in the present. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are you saved for here and now? Good works. You're saved for these good works. And, and if you think about it, when Jesus was asked, hey Jesus, what is the first and greatest commandment? Like if there's one commandment that we should follow that will help us follow all the rest, what is it? And Jesus said, well, it's, it's to love God with everything that you've got. It's to love God. But Jesus was, was clear. He didn't leave it at that. He included the second one. He said, but the second one is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think the reason he did that is because to obey God, or to love God rather, is to obey God. And First John tells us that the, the love of God is to obey his commands. So God's gonna say, hey, if you love me, obey me. Because I want you to trust me and I want you to do what I'm gonna call you to do. So if you love me, follow me. And what he's gonna then do is, is say, now love other people. Because all the other commandments of, uh, from God are about loving people. So he says, you wanna love me? I'm gonna send you out to love other people. So that's what we're made for. That's what we're saved for. And why? Why would good works be the reason that God saves us for something here in the present? Well, it's because his heart is to bring all people to himself. We saw that in our last series in, in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter three has one of, I think, one of the best verses in the Bible of, of really understanding the heart of God, where it says that, that, that God's desire is that all people would come to repentance, that all people would come to know him and, and find salvation, find eternal life in him. That's his desire, that's his heart, is that God wants everybody to be brought to himself. And so what he's gonna do once he has saved us is he's gonna save us for these good works where he's gonna turn and send us out to go be a part of what he's doing to draw more people to himself. That is why he calls us to these good works. So if that's what we're saved from, what we're saved for, then I think the, the final question would be, okay, what am I saved by? What am I saved by? 
Because I want to know how this works. I think it's really important that we understand it. Because I think if you were to ask somebody, just generally speaking, if you were to ask, like, hey, if there's a God, there's a creator, and you're not on good terms with him right now, but you can be, what do you think it would take to get on good terms with God? Like, to, to have, if he's offering eternal life, like, how do you think that that would happen? And I think just intuitively, people would say, well, I, I have to do something, right? I, it's going to require something of me, so I'm going to have to do something. We call that works, right? We, I'm going to have to do some kind of works. So, Pretty much every other religion out there is going gonna, is gonna to say this, where, hey, this is about what you can do for God. This is about what he's going to call you to do this and earn your way into a, a right standing with him. And, and so I think it makes sense. It's intuitive that, that if there's something wrong, and if I'm guilty, then of course I'm going to have to do something to make this right. It's a very intuitive idea. In fact, I think there are some Christians who buy into this. That yes, I, I think at some level I'm going to have to do something like, it's, it can't just not any of it be on me. Like, it's, some of it's got to be on me, right? But we're going to see what Paul says here in this Ephesians passage. We're going to go back a couple verses where we're going to read uh, Paul tell, uh, he's going to respond to this. What are we saved by? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Now he's going to get real clear here. And this is not your own doing is the gift of God, not a result of works. It's not a result of works so that no man may boast. So Paul tells us, look, there's nobody righteous, that the standard for righteousness is perfection and nobody hits that mark. You can't do it. You're, not, you're born into a world broken already. You cannot live a life without sin. And so the standard for righteousness is perfection. And so there's no amount of work that you can do to be perfect. Think of it this way. If you were to take a test, you're in a class and you're taking a, the final exam and the, the professor, the teacher, whoever tells you, okay, it's been a rough semester um, for, this, for this final, you're going to need a 100 to pass. Like that's just where we're at, okay? Um, I'm sorry, there's no other way around it. If you're going to pass this class, you've got to get a perfect score on the final, a 100. So you go into that test, hopefully you study, and you, uh, you, you take that test and, and you turn it in, get it back, it's graded, and you look at that and you start going through to see if you missed any of the questions, and boom, number one, got it wrong. Whoops. Big old X right there on number one. Now what you're not gonna do if you know this, if you know this is the reality, what you're not gonna do is go, oh, missed the first one. Well, let's see if I got 99 right. No, it doesn't matter. You needed a perfect score and you missed the first one, it's over. You don't get it. And so we have to recognize that God in his holiness, that his holiness, his perfection, which demands perfection from anyone in his presence, that same holiness is the holiness that will allow him to once and for all end all sin and suffering. So it's a good thing that he's holy. It's a good thing that he's perfect. But it also means that we who are not perfect don't stand a chance on our own merit that we can't get in by what we do. We cannot restore that relationship with what we do. So it is not by works that we are saved. It's not by works. What is it by? It's by grace. By grace, you are saved. And so what is that grace? Well, that grace is Christ on the cross, that Jesus looked into this world, saw us in our brokenness, and said, you can't do this on your own, so I will do something for you. And so Jesus steps into our brokenness and he lives that perfect sinless life that we are incapable of living. 
And then he goes to the cross and he takes all of our sin on himself. And he said, all that sin that makes you unrighteous, I will take it on myself. And in exchange, I will give you my righteousness. So you can have the righteousness of Christ. He'll take your sin, he'll go to the cross, and he'll die for that sin. And he'll pay the penalty for it. And so Jesus takes the sin of all of us on himself on the cross and dies the death we couldn't die, and then he raises to life again. That's the grace that saves us. How am I saved? By grace. How do I receive it? By faith. By faith. And that faith is held in contrast to works. You don't receive it by doing something to earn it. You receive it by faith, by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. That if we are all gonna stand before God one day and he's gonna say, okay, why should you enter into eternal life into, with a holy God where there will be no sin and no suffering? Why should you enter into that? If your answer starts with, because I, <clears throat> wrong. You've already missed. It's over. He will stop you right then and there. Sorry, that's, it's, that's it. You don't need to go on. So if your answer starts with, because I, it's wrong. It's not gonna get you in. But if that answer starts with, because Jesus, because Jesus did something for me, because Jesus transferred to me his righteousness and he took my sin, he paid for it. So I'm here because of Jesus. That is how we enter into eternal life. Because I trust through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. That's it. That is how I receive it, is simply by trusting in what he did. Years ago, I had a, a friend from a different theological tradition, a brother in Christ, Christian, not, not, uh, not that he's not Christian, but, but saw things differently from me. Um, he, he comes from a different faith background. And he told me this analogy of how, of, of how salvation works. And, and he, he offered it up, and I, and I thought, it was the first time that I remember hearing it said that way and thought, I don't think that makes sense to me. Like, I don't think that's, that's what the scriptures say. And so I sort of, I sort of adopted it and then customized it and, and, and modified it to fit what I believe is an accurate reflection of the scriptures. And so the analogy goes something like this, that, that all of humanity is on this boat. Think of like a, a giant cruise liner, right? Like we're all on this giant boat and we're out in the middle of the ocean. And out in the middle of the ocean, thousands of miles from land in any direction, this boat starts to take on water, starts to sink, which makes sense because all of humanity is on it. And so... We are all on this ship, it starts to take on water, and it ultimately sinks. And we are all left there in the middle of the ocean, treading water. Maybe holding on to driftwood or something, but, but we're, we're in trouble. And what we have to recognize is they're in that state where we are thousands of miles from shore in any direction with no ship, we are doomed to perish. Like on our own, if nothing else happens, we're, we're done. And then a rescue boat comes. And there's this rescue boat and God is on this rescue boat coming in and he's got a boat big enough to save everyone out there and that's what he wants to do. God sees everyone in the water. He sails right into our, sails, I don't, how old is this boat? He, he, comes, he drives into, this, into, this, into our disaster. He comes in and he's got life preservers for everyone. And he starts throwing out life preservers to every single person in the water. And here's the great thing about these, these life preservers is there's no conditions. Like God's not, he's not going out and he's going, hey, whoa, whoa um, hold on real quick. Before I do this, uh, can we make a deal? You're gonna come aboard and you're gonna follow all my rules when you get up here? Can we, can we agree to that before I, I'll give you this, but you have to agree to the rules first. 
Or like, hey, I'll bring you a board, but like, don't embarrass me, okay? Like, don't do anything really bad. Like, I, I don't need that. I've got enough. Like, don't do that, okay? Uh, like, he doesn't do that. He also doesn't say, hey, I'll bring you a board, but you got to promise you're never going to change your mind, okay? Like, never, ever going to change your mind on this. Like, can you, can you agree to that? He doesn't have any conditions. He comes out throwing out these life preservers to every single person. And what we who are in Christ have done is we have seen the life preserver and gone, hey, this is a good deal. Like, I don't like my chances here on my own, and here's a rescue boat. He's offering salvation. I'll take it. I'll take it, and I'll come aboard with him. And so we who are in Christ have just seen that this is salvation. We have grabbed hold of the life preserver. We have trusted this is how I'll get saved. And, and we've put our trust in that, and now we are in him. But then there's some who will, who will see that life preserver, and they'll look at it, and they'll look at that boat, and they'll go, wait a minute. I've heard of this guy. I know who he is. I know what he's done. I don't like him. I don't like how he does things. I think I know better than he does. And so I don't want anything to do with him or his boat. And so I'll figure something else out. I will, I will swim if I have to. I will wait for another ship, but I'm not getting on that boat. And so some will make the choice not to accept this free gift. But I believe this is how salvation works. And so if we can understand then this, this doctrine that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, if we can get past the obstacles and, and start to comprehend what is meant by saved by faith alone in Christ alone, then the next, the next question that we have is, then how can I embrace this truth? Like if, if these are the ins and outs of the doctrine and, and we're good with this and we understand the terms, the next question is, how then do I apply it? How can I live this out? And I'll start with this. I think the first step is acknowledging my own insufficiency. I think if I am going to live out this, this doctrine, this truth that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, I have to first recognize my own insufficiency that this is, this is telling me I cannot do this on my own. That if this eternal life thing depends on me, I'm not getting it. Because the standard of holiness is perfection. It is to not sin ever. And I fall short of that every single day. So I have to acknowledge my own insufficiency. I think that's the first step. I think the second step is to recognize God's plan for me. I have to recognize what God's plan is because what God's rescue plan is not, his rescue plan is not that we would never sin again. Like you're in the family of God now, good. I expect you to never sin ever again none of us would stay in that club for very long. So his rescue plan is not that we would never sin again. Instead, it is as we saw in Revelation 21, it's that, it's that eternal relationship with him forever in eternity with our creator. That he, he saves us for that eternal relationship. But there's also that present reality. What does he save us for in the present? Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. If you've ever asked the question, what is God's will for me? Paul says right here, his will for you is your sanctification. It's your sanctification. And that is about here and now. So his will for you here and now is that you would grow in the likeness of Christ. That as you continue to look at him, you continue to watch him and follow him and read his word, you'll start to emulate him, you'll start to look more and more like him. That you'll grow in sanctification. So that's what you're saved for, again, here and now. And you gotta recognize that's his plan for you. His plan for you is to grow in the likeness of Christ. 
It's also, as we saw, it's for good works, Ephesians 2.10. That his plan for you is that once he has brought you in, then he's going to send you out. He's going to send you out for these good works. And, and these good works, your salvation is not contingent on whether or not you do them. It's not. That if you never do a good work after becoming a believer, then it doesn't mean that you're not a believer. Okay? But that's what he saved you for. So I have to recognize that's going to be God's plan for me. Anything I do on the other side of receiving salvation is a response to what I know he's done for me. Which brings me to the last point, which is that I embrace Christ's work for me. I should embrace the work of Christ for me. That what he did on the cross, I look at that and I go, I'm not sufficient on my own, but that, that was sufficient. That when, when Jesus went to the cross, he took all the sin of the entire world on his shoulders and he said, I will pay that debt and I will exchange my righteousness for their sin. That was sufficient for us. And I have to embrace Christ's work for me. Now, this gospel message is not complicated, but it's so significant. And we have to internalize it. We have to know this backwards and forwards that as believers, we're going to have to preach this to ourselves each and every day. And the truth is, all three of these things are true, whether you've trusted in Christ before or you haven't. So if you've never trusted in Christ before, you're here and you're not a Christian, you've, you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, what we like to say around here is that today is a great day to do that. That today is a great day to trust for the very first time that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for you. And it looks the same. It would be to embrace or to acknowledge rather your own insufficiency. To recognize, look, I, I, I'm in need of a savior. Like I, on my own, I cannot accomplish my own salvation. If, if the standard for righteousness is perfection, I, I get it. I've sinned. I've messed up. And to have a, a relationship with a holy God would mean that I'd have to be perfect too. And I'm not. And so I acknowledge my own insufficiency. It also means to recognize what is God saving you for? He's saving you for that restored relationship. But he's also saving you for a life where you enjoy that fellowship with him here and now and you do the good works that he's gonna call you to do. But most importantly, you then embrace what Christ has done on the cross. If I recognize my insufficiency, then the only way into that relationship for the first time is to embrace Christ on the cross, to say, yes, that was good enough for me. And if you're a Christian, you need this every day too. We need to be reminded of this. If we're gonna live this out, then we need to be reminded of these truths each and every day. And I'll end with this because I think there are two truths that, that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing, what's happening in our lives, there are two truths that I think this doctrine gives us that can anchor our lives in the midst of anything. There are two things that are so important for us to remember. The first is that this offers us an assurance of our eternal destiny with Christ. Assurance is an interesting thing because many Christians struggle with this concept. Many Christians will at some point in their life go, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Like when I first became a Christian, was that authentic? Did I do it right? Did I say the right things? Did I believe the right things? And they struggle with that. Or maybe they look at their life and they go, man, those good works he's talking about, I don't see a whole lot of those when I look at my life. Does that, does that mean I'm not really a Christian? And so I think oftentimes Christians will, will struggle with their faith. And yet this doctrine gives us an assurance of our faith. That what, what John says in 1 John chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know 
that you have eternal life. See, the relationship God wants with us is not one of doubt, not one of constantly re-examining ourselves and going, ah, did I do this right? Am I, really, am I really on good terms with God? That's not what he wants. He wants a relationship where we are assured of that relationship with him, that we can know with confidence that we are in Christ. And how do we do that? Well, the error that we make is to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves, right? To say, does my life reflect this? Does my, does my, does my life reflect that I'm in Christ? Because that's not gonna be a very good measure. I think given uh, different seasons in our lives, almost all of us would have to say at some point, it doesn't look like I'm a Christian right now if it's about my works. So I can't look at myself. What about my faith? What about the strength of my faith? And I go, man, I don't, like I'm not feeling my faith very well right now. Like it doesn't feel very strong. What if my faith feels really weak? Am I not a Christian? Well, Jesus said, hey, faith like a mustard seed can move mountains. Why did he say that? To make the point that it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. Not how big, how strong is your faith, but what is your faith in? Because if your faith is in Christ on the cross, it doesn't matter how big or small, Christ on the cross is sufficient for us. And we can have assurance, not because of how strong we feel that, but because of how good he was on the cross to pay for our sins. So we as Christians can have assurance, not because we feel it enough, not because we're good enough after the fact, but only because Jesus died on the cross for us. That's where we find assurance. The second truth that this gives us, that we can anchor our lives to, is the ability to walk in the newness of life each day. So often I think Christians think, hey, once I'm saved, I'm saved and I don't have to, nothing about my life now has to change. But that's not what we're saved for either that we're saved so that we may now experience this, that we think of eternal life and we think, okay, yeah, that begins after I die and then I'm in eternity forever. But no, we have access to that eternal life. What Jesus calls that abundant life, we have access to it right now. It's because of what we talked about earlier, where we, we once were slaves of sin only in the flesh and now we've got the Holy Spirit in us, that we are a new creation and we can access that. We can live out of the spirit now. We couldn't do that before, but we can now. We can walk in this newness of life and we can experience that fellowship with God. We can walk closely with him and experience that. We can get a taste of what eternity is gonna be like if we walk in the life that he calls us to right now, in the newness of life. See, the Christian faith doesn't make all of our problems go away. It doesn't end our suffering, but it gives purpose to our pain gives purpose to our pain, it gives direction to our lives, and it gives us the hope of an eternity with our Creator. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stonelight Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.